Good morning. This is Dr. Dang Guerra. I come to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest of the USA. Today, we're in a new month. It's actually the second day of March. Really good month. Uh, and the year is 2021. It hasn't changed yet, interestingly. So last time, I was moving really quickly towards the end of the lecture and didn't get in about the last 30 seconds. It got cut off, and that's because of the way that the platform works. I'm going to post this directly um, to all the different uh, places where you can get this for free. I have a 30-minute time limit. Now, I could increase that, but it would mean I'd have to switch a couple of uh, settings, and those settings would then alter the distribution. Right now, I'm just trying to get as much out there as I can. Um, and right now, it's for free. But I really would like it if you would subscribe to this podcast, Authentic Biochemistry, and please give it a high rating so that it can be noticed more on those platforms. And please donate. I have a Patreon page for Authentic Biochemistry, and you can do it directly, too, with PayPal. Um, just you know, let me know, and I, I'll set you up. But you should be able to email me at djgphd at gmail.com. And um, we, you can also discuss anything that we ever do on this podcast. So, okay, that's the business part of, oh, aside. I told you that uh, at the end of the last uh, lecture, I didn't quite finish what I was doing with you about the sirtuins and the fine points of regulation, which are really fascinating, about amino acid metabolism. Uh, relative to disease state and also to caloric restriction in humans. Very interesting, highly significant, very authentic biochemistry. Now, I'm going to finish today with that. I'm going to really keep my time uh, more accountable and also uh, we'll talk faster if that's possible. But I want to go back and just give you sort of a um, typical beginning of a classical amino acid utilization lecture in graduate biochemistry and just give give you a very, very brief synopsis of that. And then we'll jump back into where we were uh, when we left off a couple of days ago. All right. So I'm just going to call this amino acid catabolism and redirecting of hepatic and intestinal intermediary metabolism. Now, when you digest proteins in the gut, you take them in as polypeptides, um, they're greeted by a series of endo and exoproteases. So pepsin is one of the first enzymes that greet polypeptides during digestion, and also trypsin, chymotrypsin, the elastase, and then the carboxypeptidases A and B. Now, the origin of pepsin is, is from the stomach. And all those other ends I just told you is from the pancreas. Now, these polypeptides are being um, proteolytically degraded in the lumen. Once you get to the luminal surface, then you have about 40% that are free amino acids, individual amino acids, and the and 60% or thereabouts is going to remain as oligopolypeptides. So the amino acids will continue to be taken all the way into the eterocyte, and there's a sodium um, importer system in which sodium and amino acids are brought in together. So that's called a symporter, remember. And inside the enterocyte, you, you're getting an increase in sodium. You're also getting an increase in 
the further degradation of the oligopeptides after brush border membrane proteolytic degradation using endopeptidases, aminopeptidases, and even the dipeptidase. So now you're floating in the amino acid I told you about through that sodium symporter, but the dipeptides and tripeptides are also moving through uh, with a proton symporter. So you're increasing inside the lumen uh, of the enterocyte. You're increasing sodium concentration and you're acidifying. Now, there are some dipeptidases and tripeptidases in the enterocyte that work under those conditions. And ultimately, all of the polypeptide and dipeptide are all broken down into individual amino acids. Amino acids are exported out of the enterocyte and now into the capillary. Okay, so this is basically the digestion absorption of proteins in the gut. So um, just to clear off, though, what else happens is sodium is transported out of the enterocyte. And in so doing, potassium is imported in, and that requires ATP hydrolysis. So that's a sodium-potassium ATPase, uh, but not ATP synthesizing, ATP utilizing to push the sodium back out just to keep balance with everything that has to go on in the entire system. Now, something about this whole uh, proteolytic degradation. So you have polypeptides, oligopeptides, amino acids, all those are ending up in the intestinal endocrine cell. The intestinal endocrine cells will actually generate CCK, right? Now that is a, that is a hormone directed directly to the intestinal mucosal epithelial cell. CCK will induce in the intestinal mucosal epithelial cell enteropeptidase. At the same time, the intestinal endocrine cell secreting CCK and another hormone called secretin will make it to the pancreas, particularly the pancreatic acinar cell, because remember, that's going to be, uh, that, that is not the uh, hormonal cell, right? That's not part of the pancreatic um, endocrine function is part of the pancreatic exocrine function, the acinar cells. Unfortunately, it's also a common place where pancreatic cancer starts is in the acinar cell. It's a side, it's an aside, but I should bring it up. Okay, so anyways, we've got enteropeptidases then, and they're going to take uh, trypsinogen, which comes from the pancreatic acinar cell, after induction of CCK and secretin, coming from the intestinal endocrine cell, after digestion of the polypeptides I just went through. Trypsinogen then via the activity of enteropeptidase, which is brought to the system from the intestinal mucosal epithelial cell, will turn trypsinogen into trypsin. Remember, that's a protease. Trypsin will also now induce its own synthesis by cleaving trypsinogen as well. So it doesn't matter which way it goes, you've got trypsin now. And trypsin will act as a protease for several other proteases. Which ones? Chymotrypsinogen, proelastase, and procarboxypeptidase. And they're going to be converted then via trypsin to chymotrypsinolastase and carboxypeptidase. And these all have specific um, amino acid sequence endoproteolytic cleavage sites. Okay, so that therefore you can break down all the protein you're um, metabolizing in the gut unless it's something very unusual from some very unusual source, then it could cause, well, indigestion. <laughs> but okay, but most for the most part, you're able to break down just about the polypeptide you get. Again, unless it has some unusual side chain structure or something. All right, so you've got trypsin, 
which is going to cleave after an arginineolizing residue, chymotrypsin, which will cleave after a tryptophan, tyrosine, phenylalanine, or leucine, elastase, which will cleave after alanine, glycine, leucine, and then the carboxypeptidases, which cleave right before alanine, isoleucine, leucine, or valine. That's the A, carboxypeptidase A. Carboxypeptidase B will cleave uh, proximal to arginine or lysine. Right? So that's where you get all of that proteolytic degradation. Just want to make sure you got that now. All right. So um, non-essential amino acids will just be used in the transamination reactions for any of the carbon skeletons that are generated, for example, from the tricarboxylic acid cycle. And in fact, um, you can convert glycine to serine. We talked about this. Serine into pyruvate, alanine into pyruvate, carbon that from pyruvate can make it to the TCA cycle, go to alpha-ketoglutarate. Alpha-ketoglutarate can come from the following amino acids, proline, glutamine, arginine, histidine, all fitting their carbon into glutamate. And that's how you get to alpha-ketoglutarate. And of course, oxalacetic acid in the TCA cycle can be uh, rendered, the, the carbon complement can be rendered into that. Uh, carboxylic acid in the DCA cycle again, from asparagine, then going to aspartate, then going to OA. And that last reaction will, of course, be a transaminase. All right. So essential amino acids are different and they are more specific, but I will briefly tell you that threonine goes to glycine, glycine to serine, serine to 3-phosphoglycerate. That's how threonine gets um, catabolized. Tryptophan will be converted to alanine and then to pyruvate cysteine to pyruvate, threonine to glycine to serine pyruvate. I think I mentioned that. Threonine also directly to pyruvate. Lysine, tyrosine, isoleucine, leucine, and tryptophan can all be converted to acetate. We spent a great length talking about that uh, um, ketone body. And acetoacetate, of course, can be converted to acetyl-CoA. Aphelion uh, and tyrosine can be converted to fumarate and methionine to alpha-ketobutyrate which then feeds into propionyl-CoA and then thus into succinyl-CoA. And both valine and isoleucine are converted to propionyl-CoA. So I think that covers all the essential amino acids, at least the ones I can think of uh, off the top of my head. So I'm not going to repeat what are essential and non-essential because I kind of already just did that with you. Um, amino transferase or transaminase reactions, remember just moving the amino group from one amino acid to an alpha carbon, uh, I mean to a keto function, on an alpha keto acid, um, carboxylic acid, and then that will be made into a new amino acid. And what's left over after that uh, amino transfer then is the resultant uh, keto carboxylic acid. And we talked a little bit about transamination reactions a while back. I'm not gonna go into any detail. Here's a common one, alanine plus alpha KG, it's alpha glutarate. Go to pyruvate glutamate. Okay. And they're freely reversible just depending on substrate concentration. Valine, more specific, it will take alpha ketoglutarate and make glutamate. That's very common. But then the resultant amino acid, uh, the, the resultant carboxylic acid will be alpha keto. There's a keto function again, isovalerate. In fact, some of these uh, amino acids show up in the amino acid deficiency inborn errors and metabolism syndromes in humans. And I've talked about that too. So remember this though, that most tissues 
You're going to have a lot of glutamate around because it's a common amide amino acid found in serum circulating all the time. But you also can, can, can generate some ammonia. And so when there's any free ammonia, the enzyme glutamine synthetase is really important, okay? Because glutamine synthetase in most tissues peripheral in the body take ATP and ammonia and convert the glutamate to glutamine, right? So you're generating that R group now on glutamine by adding that amino group. And the process, you burn the ATP to ATP and PI. Glutamine then is going to go to the liver where the urea cycle is dominant, right? That's where dominantly where urea cycle functions. And uh, glutamine will then be converted to glutamate via the enzyme glutaminase just by passing water over that linkage. So now you've freed up the amino group, which will go directly into urea synthesis, right? The glutamate, of course, can be uh, utilized uh, to make alpha-ketoglutarate, but also alpha-ketoglutarate and indeed alanine can be used, alpha-ketoglutarate directly to glutamate and alanine directly to pyruvate via the alanine amino transferase reaction, right? So alpha-KG plus alanine registered to that. All right, and then the pyruvate can go into uh, gluconeogenesis. So this would be how you take the amino acids and convert them into sugar. And the glucose can then leave the liver and go to muscle, for example. And that glucose then can be used again, um, be converted to pyruvate via glycolysis. Now you have a new transaminase reaction there. In fact, it's the same one, alanine aminotransferase, now in the skeletal muscle. And that would take pyruvate then and glutamate and make alpha-ketoglutarate and alanine, right? And remember, then you can take that amino group coming from any other amino acid and convert alpha-KG to glutamate. So this is, this is the machine that drives all that amino function and all those amino acids. That's the muscle has to have a lot of amino acids because protein it constantly is degraded and resynthesized because of contraction, relaxation cycle, and skeletal muscle. So that means you have to have a lot of free amino acids, and that's how this is conducted. Because this is a, a, a the myopic view talking from amino acid metabolism. That's what we're doing here, right? So just remember that when you go from alpha-ketoglutarate to glutamate, right, that reaction, or glutamate to alpha-ketoglutarate, right, that's a reversible reaction. So if you're going from alpha-KG to glutamate, You've got ammonia, NADPH, and then that's converted to NADP, and you make glutamic acid. If you start with glutamic acid, you need NAD going to NADH, so NAD gets reduced, ammonia is released, and that's how you get the alpha-KG. So that is basically the glutamate dehydrogenase reaction we were talking about in some detail last time. Remember, too, that this glutaminase reaction is actually only one way, uh, the glutaminase itself, that is. And that's glutamine um, passing water again over that amide-linked amino group, and you form ammonia and then glutamic acid. That's a really important setup then, right? We just talked about it for kick uh, start kickstarting the urea cycle in the liver, right, during amino acid um, utilization. Um, so another way of looking at it is that you've got ammonium ion, the ammonium ion can be used in the formation of glutamate. Uh, it can be synthesized from other amino acids. That is, it can show up as other from other amino acids. It can show up actually from intestinal bacteria. And that ammonium uh, can also be used to then make glutamine. 
And remember, glutamate is in constant redux uh, transamination reactions with all the other amino acids. So that's where core glutamate, glutamine, ammonia, and all other amino acids come together in an axis of synthesis degradation and interconversion, where glutamate plays such a central role. Right? Again, just remember that you need, to, if you want to synthesize glutamate from scratch, uh, well, not actually from scratch of the carbon skeleton. If you're starting with alpha-KG for the TCA sac, for example, and you go, go with ammonium, that you're going to need to have then that NADPH and the NADPH going to NADP. And by the way, that reaction is stimulated by ATP and GTP, which, of course, uh, are ultimate end products of the TCA cycle, right? Whereas glutamate going to alpha-KG, that the allosteric regulation of that enzymatic reaction Glutamate dehydrogenase going from going from glutamate to the alpha glutamate plus free ammonium ion. That reaction, which is NAD dependent, is stimulated by ADP and GDP. Again, this means that you're going to need more ATP. So you're pumping the carbon from glutamate directly into alpha KG so you can spin the TCA cycle, entering at that level of oxidation. All right. All right. I told you that you needed ATP to make glutamine, right? Glutamine synthetase takes glutamate and makes glutamine using free ammonium ion and ATP hydrolysis. All right. So the transamination reactions are very common. So another one I'll mention to you because we're going to mention asparagine in a minute here. Uh, aspartate and glutamine uh, with the hydrolysis of ATP all the way down now to AMP plus PPI going to 2PI, that's going to give you asparagine and glutamate, okay? So you can synthesize asparagine from aspartic acid and glutamine using that reaction. So I just wanted to mention it to you. Um, also, I want to explain to you that there are heterotrimeric um, amino acid transporters that are common in the intestine. And these amino acid transporters have multiple membrane-spanning domains. When we're talking about membrane proteins, this is one huge one. It's a heteromeric amino acid transporter, very common in the cell, very well described in mammals. Now, last time I was talking to you about the sirtuins, we're getting right back into it now, finally. I remember I told you that you had sirtuins and there were like seven of them. And then I talked about sir two. Well, SIR2 is actually the NAD-dependent deacetylase that actually connects metabolism with, I'm going to put this in huge quotation marks, increases in longevity in yeast, drosophila, and in C. elegans. Okay. Uh, and when I'm putting in parentheses, the increase in longevity, not the rest of that sentence. So SIR2 is S-I-R, SIR, like SIR, and then the number two. Now, mammals have seven SIR2 homologs, and we call those SIRT, one through seven. That's S-I-R-T, not just S-I-R, you see. It's a distinction you should remember when studying the literature. Now, they talk, I talked a lot about um, in the past, when I say they, the literature, but I have uh, subsumed this literature and told you that SIRT4 is a mitochondrial enzyme, of course, it uses NAD to use uh, to, to cause a reaction that results in an ADP ribosylation. 
And that ADP ribosylation down regulates that glutamate dehydrogenase activity. I was just telling you about. You know that GDH is known to promote the metabolism of glutamate and glutamine, right? You know, it can generate ATP, which would then promote insulin secretion. And this is in the pancreatic beta cell where this is functioning. And I told you that if you lose CERT4, in either insulinoma cells, so these are cells, basically cancer cells that produce a lot of insulin, it's going to activate. So if you lose CERT4, it'll activate glutamate dehydrogenase, and it will upregulate amino acid-stimulated insulin secretion. And there's a very similar effect on the, on, in the pancreatic beta cell system, not just in insulinoma cells, but in the beta cells from pancreas. And this is, of course, most done in mice, but it's been studied in mammals, and, I mean, in humans as well. So in pancreatic beta cells, for mice deficient in CERT4 on, or on a dietary regimen of calorie restriction, you get the same event, upregulating amino acid stimulating insulin secretion, okay? So caloric restriction works the same way, which is telling you something about protein catabolism as a source of carbon as a trigger that looks like caloric restriction because you don't want to lose lean body mass, right? And that's the whole process. Ultimately, you want to use that carbon from the amino acids to be coniogenic in the liver, for example. Remember, too, that GDH, glutamate dehydrogenase, from CERT4 deficient or from caloric restricted mice, this is something you used to repeat from last time, is insensitive to a phosphodiesterase. Now that's an enzyme, remember, they will cleave, it, it, the phosphodiesterases are common enzymes, but the particular one we're talking about here cleaves ADP ribose. So that suggests you get then, the result of that would be, from CERT4 deficiency or from caloric restriction, the absence of an ADP ribosylation reaction. You bet. So the results indicate that CERT4 is really critical in beta cell mitochondria. Uh, it represses the activity of GDH by ADP ribosylation, which is what GDH would normally do, I mean, which what CERT4 normally would do. And then it would downregulate insulin secretion in response to amino acids. And all these effects will be alleviated because it looks like the same thing, that is amino acid utilization, be alleviated by caloric restriction. All right. Now, remember I was talking about paper in Na uh, Nature Communication 2018. Told you about, you get reversible post-translational modifications. Then I told you about CERT5. CERT5 carries out lysine desuccinylation and deglutarylation and even demalinylation, right? And that, that CERT5 activity was associated with colorectal cancer, or CRC. I told you deletion of CERT5, that particular uh, deacylase caused a market increase in C13 using heavy isoglutamine incorporation into the TCA cycle. I just told you now how the TCA cycle picks up the carbon glutamine, right? And that's interesting because all, all those TCA intermediates then uh, load up with C13 from glutamine. So you get glutamine derived from non-essential amino acids, and that will limit tumor growth. Okay, so this whole process is regulated by CERT5. I just told you CERT4, now CERT5, which actually is a SIR number two isophore. So CERT5 causes indeed 
deglutarylation and functional activation of glutamate dehydrogenase 1. So that's essential to cellular glutaminolysis using glutamate, glutamine and then glutamate to ultimately throw carbons to the TCA cycle. So if you, if you take this glutamate dehydrogenase 1 and you knock it down, it will diminish the CERT5-induced proliferation of the cancer. And that happens both in vivo and in vitro. So clinically, overexpression of CERT5 is significantly correlated, unfortunately, with this very poor prognosis in colorectal cancer. So CERT5 supports then, this, from this, we already know this from basic physiology, but the way it's fitting in with the cancer is CERT5 supports the anaplerotic entry of glutamine into the TCA cycle, and it's happening in malignant phenotypes, because it's been seen in malignant phenotypes in humans, of colorectal cancer. And that's all done via the activation of the glutamate dehydrogenase. So it's utilizing these amino acids, right? That's basically what we're talking about. Now, <clears throat> putting it all together, portal blood, you get ammonia, right? This is all going down now in the liver. It's ammonia and bicarbonate, right? With the activity of carbamyl phosphate synthase 1, that's the mitochondrial enzyme, CPS1, right? Which is activated by N-acetylglutamate, which is synthesized from glutamate and acetyl-CoA, the glutamate coming from glutamine. And after uh, glutaminolysis, you have glutamate and ammonia. So you have ammonia and bicarbonate being converted now to carbamyl phosphate, but triggered by the glutamate and acetyl-CoA uptick, which acts as an allosteric effector in the form of N-acetylglutamate for CPS1. Then you remember you, you then you start churning the uh, the urea cycle, carbamyl phosphate plus ornithine, right? It goes through um, the ornithine, uh, uh, the OTC enzyme and that makes citrulline, right? So very important reaction. And then citrulline then enters into the cytosol. So these are mitochondrial enzymes I just told you. Citrulline enters in the, into the cytosol and reacts with aspartate to make arginosuccinate via arginosuccinate synthase using ATP. Arginosuccinate then is uh, converted after arginosuccinate lyase to fumarate. Fumarate is converted to malate, malate to OAA. This is all TCA cycle stuff. Transaminate to aspartate. And that's where the aspartate comes from that reacts with citrulline in the arginosuccinate synthase reaction. Okay, so finish that off. Now, arginosuccinate via ASL, the arginosuccinate lyase, will make arginine. Arginine then in, via arginase will synthesize urea. And of course, urea will pass finally in, out into the urine. The, uh, the, uh, the, remainder, the, the remainder will be ornithine, and then the ornithine will be converted uh, ultimately uh, to, again, uh, citrulline via reacting with carbamyl phosphate. Once the ornithine leaves the cytosol and is grouped, can't transport it back into the mitochondria to finish the cycle. All right. So now you got the whole picture. I just want you to get that, that image in your mind because that's really important. Gosh, we're really going fast. We only got about a minute, uh, two minutes to go. Okay. So let me see what I can get done here. All right.
All right, let me see here. All right, remember that CPS1, that's the carbamylophosphate synthase 1, and the urea, uh, and basically the urea cycle are in the liver. It's very liver specific, but there is a CPS1 in the small intestinal epithelia. Okay, we're going to talk about that later. That's a very important thing for digestion. So that's also in the small intestine. But now let's go back here and just briefly just put this together. CERT5 regulates the activity of carbamylophosphate synthase 1. Trypsin digested CPS1 from bovine liver contained a succinyl lysine. We know that CERT5s desuccinylate. Okay. That can be ascertained when using a CERT5 knockout mouse. CPS1 activity was 15% higher, only 15, when you had CERT5 wild type as compared to that knockout. Uh-huh. So that means you're removing, it looks like, the desuccinylase when you do the knockout, and that increases CPS1 activity. Okay, so mass spectral analysis show, remember I told you just last time, there were three lysine residues of CPS1. They can be acetylated and succinylated. Lysine 44 and 287 didn't seem to be affected by this process. It was lysine 2, 1291 succinylation level, which was affected by that CERT5 knockout. In fact, it was increased. So protein lysine succinylation is reversed by CERT5. That's guaranteed. So CERT5 is an NAD-dependent demelinase, desuccinylase, and the demelinase and desuccinylase activity are, mo- are much higher than the deacetylase. Now, Presumably, all class three sirtuins are conserved, and it's no surprise that uh, conserved because of their nargenine and tyrosine residue that they can take on any negatively charged group as a uh, covalent modifying system. And so that means that they can be gluteal related. All right, stop here, finish next time. Goodbye.